Before we get into the live podcast on aortic dissection with David Carr, recorded at the EM Cases course in 2017, I thought it might be cool just to take a few minutes to hear some of the comments from the participants and faculty at the course and let them tell us why they came to the course and some of the things they learned. Thank you so much to Michelle Yi, the EM Cases team member who played a central role in producing the EM Cases Digest eBooks, who interviewed these fine folks. So I think uh, the biggest take home from uh, running a code where you're dealing with PEA or asystole is that not all PEA patients are the same. And uh, just blindly giving epinephrine, one milligram IV and doing CPR uh, may not be appropriate for all patients. So take a minute to actually look at the ECG. Is it narrow and regular or is it wide and irregular? Um, And that can certainly give you a lot of clues about the differential diagnosis. And then don't be afraid to pull out the ultrasound probe during your pulse check look at the heart, is the heart beating or not? And if you have a vigorously beating heart, giving a milligram of epinephrine is probably not appropriate in those patients. So really start aggressively looking for the reversible cause for that patient's shock. And keep in mind that a milligram of epinephrine for a patient with a beating heart is potentially harmful. So start um, revisiting the differential diagnosis and have a thoughtful approach to PEA. And if you divide patients into patients who have vigorous cardiac activity versus cardiac standstill, you can have a more refined approach to dealing with the with their resuscitation. You know, I was just at a great uh, session with Emily Austin and Margaret Thompson on toxicology, and I'm like the world's biggest lipid emulsion therapy fan. And I think one of the great points is when you got a lipophilic drug, firstly, you got to think about what the actual antidotes are for that drug. You know, whether it's calcium or beta blocker and you're given insulin, whether it's a TCA and you're given bicarb. But one of the things is that intralipid doesn't work well in an acidotic milieu. You need to, you know, you have a patient with a lactate of 15, intralipid is not going to work. You want to optimize its use. You got to resuscitate, resuscitate, resuscitate. Maybe you bolus them some bicarb, raise the pH, then give your lipid emulsion therapy the best chance of working on the right patient. So my name is Sonia Sabir. I am an emergency physician at Markham Stovall Hospital. I really enjoyed the pediatric cases in this conference, uh, particularly with respect to the cyanotic infant, because I found that it gave me a better mental approach to it, uh, where I feel that I can act upon it. For instance, dividing up that the sick neonate into their colors, so pink, blue, gray, pink, you know, sort of between one to six months being CHF and blue, there's a whole, there's four differentials for a blue child and then gray being the very sick, hypoperfused child as well. So I find that fantastic way to go. So I would encourage people to look at the cyanotic infant in uh, the M case. It was just absolutely fantastic and this was a good And my name is Dr. Dominika Jagan. I do remote medicine in Nunavut and the Northwest Territories. I signed up because my colleague actually encouraged me to, and I think it was fabulous because it was worth every penny in the sense of being up to date, having Canadian knowledge, and being with people who are at the forefront of Canadian emergency medicine. So certainly I'll be back next year and I'm going to use what I learned today in my daily practice. Out of all the different seminars you did today, what was your favorite one and maybe a clinical pearl that you're taking home today? I really thought the knee presentation was excellent. So occult 
x-ray negative knee injuries I think are really important. I actually had a physiotherapist friend who's diagnosed three patellar tendon ruptures in coffee shops and obviously a physician had missed it so I think their emphasis on the straight rating test was really important as something we see all the time and need to be doing that test. I'm Larry. I live in Kitchener, but I've been working in Sioux Lookout for a long time. And so I really rely a lot on EM cases to keep me up to date on emergency medicine. I only do emerge part-time, hard to keep up and everything. I love the podcast so much, I decided to come to the conference and, and just spend a day really supercharging things. I had a great session on PEA with Jordan, breaking it down and, and taking us away from this sort of generic approach to all and having a little bit more granularity in how we approach it. So that was fantastic, among many other take-home points. All right, so we're here with Paul Hannum, who is one of the doctors who has participated as part of the ortho session. What would be some key take-home points that you got from the ortho session? Having the patient sit up and to uh, tap a knee with the patient in the sitting position and just inferior and uh, either medial or lateral to the uh, patellar tendon for me is different to my practice. I would normally do that with the person lying down. So uh, I'm told that having this person sitting up and uh, going to that location makes it a lot easier. My name is Barbara and I'm a EM, a third year at Queen's University right now. Today I was just really excited for all the people that were going to be here. Um, it was phenomenal. We had wonderful sessions. Every session I got so many clinical pearls. But I think what I really took from today was just the value of continuing the discussions, continuing conversations, making sure you're collaborating with your colleagues, how much other people's experience can really benefit uh, your own and, and just continuing to share your cases and learning from each other's and learning from your own stories. I think that's where EM cases really developed from is, is from the patients, from our situations and uh, have gotten great pearls, not just from the presenters, but from colleagues. So it's been really wonderful. So it's definitely been an opportunity for positive role modeling and just sharing a community that really enjoys lifelong learning. Absolutely. And now what you've all been waiting for, the live podcast recorded at the EM Cases Course 2017 on Aortic Dissection. We're about to do what's only been done once before at this conference. This is not a lecture. It's not 150 PowerPoint slides. This isn't even a regular EM Cases podcast. This is the second ever live EM Cases podcast. So what do you say, Dr. Carr? Should we cue the music? Hit it. Welcome to the EM Cases podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine, live from the EM Cases course in Toronto. On this special live episode, we have Dr. David Carr of Cards Cases fame, international speaker extraordinaire, passionate educator, and all-around great guy from the University Health Network in Toronto, to discuss one of his favorite topics in EM, aortic dissection. So welcome back to EM Cases, Dr. Carr, and welcome everyone here to the course and the live podcast. Now, aortic dissection is scary, right? It's rare, yet it's catastrophic. 
Yeah, but I, I think, Anton, it is catastrophic. It is rare, but it gets more airplay than any other rare disorder. And that's why I love it so much. I mean, we're looking at three to 100,000 person year prevalence, and we're talking here at EM Cases about this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's catastrophic. Like we said, each hour that passes, there's a 1% to 2% increase in mortality. So timely diagnosis is really key. So half your patients are dead in two days if you miss it. Exactly. And, and what's great about it and what's scary about it is uh, one in six presentation of dissections are missed on the initial ER visit. We just had a missed dissection this past week. Uh, terrible. Terrible. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. You know, we need to at least consider the diagnosis in all patients with chest pain, belly pain, or back pain, even syncope with stroke symptoms. But we shouldn't be working up every one of them or else we'll bankrupt the healthcare system and we'll give everyone who ever visits the ED radiation-induced cancer. So with the help of Dr. Carr, we'll discuss how to pick up atypical presentations of aortic dissection and manage them like pros by reviewing a few things. So first, there's five pain pearls, and we'll go through those. Second, the concept of chest plane plus one and the concept of one plus chest pain. Third, some chest x-ray pearls. Fourth, blood test pitfalls. And finally, the importance of the correct order and aggressive use of IV meds for aortic dissection management. So with those objectives in mind, let's dive into our first case. Let's go! A 46-year-old man was sitting at home checking his BP. He has a history of hypertension when he developed a sudden onset of retrosternal chest pain that radiated into his back. He arrives in your ED about an hour later. He's got no neurologic deficits, has symmetrical blood pressures in both arms, and has normal vitals. His ECG, chest x-ray, and initial trope are all normal. So, Dave, we don't have a full history here, but so far, what do you think of this case? I think it's nothing. I mean, I think anyone who takes their own blood pressure has nothing wrong with them. Um, <laughs> I hate people who take their own blood pressure. Uh, no, I, 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 it's an aortic dissection lecture, but it's certainly not super scary, but there's a lot more we need to know about his pain. Okay, so Dave, what, what, what exactly do you want to know? Okay, so for me, when I'm thinking about dissection or chest pain, there's three questions you need to know. And we're not here to talk about dissection where um, someone has severe chest pain going to their back that they've described as ripping and they have a wide mediastinum and a blood pressure difference because no one ever high fives their buddies and brags about those saves because those are not the ones you miss. It's how do we not miss the other ones? And I think a lot of it comes down to really approaching pain and beating pain to death with these patients. All right, so let's dissect this case and uh, get back to the basics and talk about five pain pearls. So here we go. Yeah, 
this to me is the most important study. If there's one slide to, take, to know about, if there's one thing you want to take from this lecture, it's you need to know three questions. We're going to give you five pearls. But if you know three questions, you're dramatically ahead of where you were yesterday. And this is from a study that was done about 20 years ago. And it was a retrospective study that looked at people with confirmed diagnosis of aortic dissection. And in these cases, about two-thirds of them, 65%, were correctly suspected. And what they found out, that is, in those that were appropriately suspected, 42% of them were asked these three questions. And if the doc asked these three questions, he or she correctly identified this disorder over 90% of the time. Any combination less than three questions, less than half of the people were correctly identified. So this is groundbreaking to me. So what this means is for everyone with chest pain, and I'm talking sucky chest pain, real chest pain, all chest pain, you need to ask and document three questions. What is the quality of pain? Okay. Is this severe? Is this sharp? Were there radiation of symptoms? Do you have any back, abdo, leg symptoms? And lastly, what was the intensity at onset? Was this a sudden onset? So was this sharp? Did it go anywhere? Did it happen suddenly? If you ask those three questions, you're already ahead of the game. But you just got to ask and document for all. Yeah, Dave, I want to get a little bit more into this intensity at onset question, the last question here. So this 46-year-old guy in our case had a, quote, sudden onset of pain. Now, this is one of my pet peeves. Pretty much every time I ask a patient if they had a gradual onset or a sudden onset, what do they say? Sudden. Even if it was the most gradual onset, if it's taken three years for their onset of pain, it's still sudden onset. So I prefer to get rid of the, the term sudden altogether and just use the term abrupt. And I specifically ask the question to the patient, how long did it take for your pain to go from zero to its peak? And if they say a few seconds, that's abrupt. If they say a few hours, that ain't abrupt. That's why I like to think of dissection as the subarachnoid hemorrhage of the torso. So it's a truly abrupt onset. How long did it take to go to 10? It couldn't be more accurate. And, and I find myself always crossing out residents, nurses, or, or augmenting when someone writes the word sudden because I hate that word. And I think you really have to tease that out. Absolutely. All right. Okay. So that's the three key pain questions that you ask every patient with acute torso pain. What's the next pain pearl, Dave? If you've seen a dissection, these people are colicky. It's like a renal colic of your chest. These are not comfortable sitting with their leg up, looking all like they're lounging. These people are very uncomfortable. And if a nurse asks you to give a patient with chest pain opioids, you have to understand why he or she is doing that. People with STEMIs, ACS, uh, pneumonia, they're not needing narcotics. So I think that if you've committed a patient to a course of parenteral narcotics, you have to have alarm bells, meaning you've paid your CMPA dues and whatnot, that you have started to think about dissection because this is badness. Right. So that kind of renal colic looking patient, maybe you should be thinking about dissection too. Yeah. They're more fidgety than me on a good day and they're extremely uncomfortable. Absolutely. All right. So Dave, what's the next pain pearl? We've gone through the three big questions. We've gone through this colicky pain plus opioids equals badness. Uh, what's the next pain pearl? Yeah, I think we need to think about pain as something that comes and goes. There's a false sense of reassurance where you see someone with chest pain, they say, well, it got better. 
and then it came back. And I'm afraid of those people when it comes to chest pain because to me, that is the false lumen uh, that's created from that intimal tear and it's tamponading off and then it starts to rip again. So I'm not falsely reassured by the return of pain. I think that makes you think you, that person has a second chance to survive that initial propagation. Yeah. Dissection definitely can be intermittent. In other words, it can come and go. Who here is an Allman Brothers fan? Anyone? Uh, Bug's old enough to know the Allman Brothers. Awesome. Great. Um, So, you know, we've all heard the old saying, pain above and below the diaphragm is a red flag for dissection. So this brings us to our next pain pearl, migrating pain. Yeah, look, I mean, if you look, if you get migrating, you're lucky. It's not that common. It's about 17% of dissections, but the likelihood ratio is about seven and a half. So if you get migratory pain, pain that's moving around, it's a gift. It's there in the triage. It's there in the story. It's a gift. You don't always get it. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of those things where, you know, usually if someone comes in with pain that migrates, they go, oh, you know, I had a little bit of pain in my left upper chest, and then it went a little bit down here to my belly, and then now it's up here, and it's kind of moving all around. My first gut instinct is to think that that's nothing. So when you do get that patient, just, just for a second, think, could this be a dissection? Let's go on to the fifth pain pearl, and that is that big red devascularizes. Yeah, it's a huge artery, right? It can tear from head to toe. So you can have symptoms anywhere. I think that the issue is the textbooks and what you read provide a classic description of a type A dissection. So 80% of dissections are type A's, the rest are type B's. And A's are your ascending aorta and B are your non-ascending aortas. But when we look at ascending aorta tears, your type A's, 70% of them have chest pain. When all of us think about dissection, we think this is a chest pain problem, okay? It's in your sinister chest pain differentials. When you look at type B's, only 45% of people have chest pain. So you can't just assume that you have to have chest pain to have a dissection. You have to have some symptoms. And it might be in that person who has abdo pain, they also have back pain, they have leg pain, they have other pains. So remember that aorta starts here, fires off your carotid, fires off your renal arteries, fires off your extremities, your iliacs. It really is a head-to-toe problem. Right. So this is where the idea of chest pain plus one comes in. And in a minute, we'll get to one plus chest pain. So before we get to that, though, let's review the five pain pearls. Number one. Ask the three pain questions. Number two. Colicky pain, opioids, equals badness, think dissection. Number three. Pain that comes and goes, that is intermittent pain, can still be a dissection as the dissecting stops and starts. Just remember, come and go blues, the Allman Brothers. Number four. If you get migration, you're lucky. It's bad. And finally, number five, the aorta can tear anywhere outside the chest and cause pain and end organ damage in some surprising places. We've talked about pain, but Dave, we haven't talked about painless dissection. Painless dissection. Have you guys heard of this? Painless dissection? I mean, what could be worse than the eight? than the atypical dissection, than painless dissection. 
What wasn't there some like crazy paper that came out of Japan that talked about painless dissection, Dave? Yeah, I mean, your knowledge of Japanese literature is phenomenal, Anton. And what I'll say is that the typical pain description, the largest uh, registry on dissection is something called the IRAD registry, which is the International Registry of Aortic Dissection. And it looks at about under 500 patients with dissection. And what the original estimates were that about 4.5% did not have pain. Okay, I can live with that. The Japanese patient, uh, publication that you referenced to is about five years old. It looked at a study that said 17% did not have pain. And, and that's, these are very different numbers. And I think it's what they presented in this paper is when you look at the people who have painless dissections, they almost invariably have a neurological deficit. So 25% of them have a syncopal episode, so they syncopized. Um, 19% will have a focal deficit. And what you have to remember is that 5% of dissections present as a stroke, which, you know, if you're a TPA fan, it's not a great treatment for dissection. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you one of the earliest cases that piqued my interest about 15 years ago was one of my colleagues, who's an unbelievable eMERGE doc, saw a person who said, I was watching TV on the couch, and then I was paralyzed. And uh, I called 911. They got to my apartment. And by the time I got there, I walked to the door. My, my uh, paralysis had resolved. EMS kind of convinced her to go to the eMERGE. And she came to eMERGE, and this brilliant eMERGE doc said, gee, you were paralyzed? Is this story real? And she looked at this person, and she said, like, this person's legit. We all know the I'm paralyzed, I couldn't move story. No, no, this was real. She felt it. So what she did was she said, I'm really worried. What could this be? This person had no pain. She was paralyzed. Maybe she had a transient ischemic attack of her artery of Ademkowitz and had a spinal artery TIA. Oh, I mean, like, that's a mouthful, right? This is a smart doc. And uh, she arranged, got an urgent MRI. This is a long time ago, not easy to get. And patient died on the MR. And uh, they died of a painless dissection that had just presented with acute limb paralysis. And, you know, people will tell you about their paralysis, but unless you ask them about other stuff, they're not focused on that. If you're paralyzed, you're only going to tell the doc about your paralysis. But she often used to wonder, what if I had taken a history about a dissection? What if I had asked about, did you have some chest pain prior? Um, you got to ask about that stuff. And it was extremely humbling. And, you know, I've done this, I've talked about dissection for a while. And when you go to a room, you got tons of story of painless dissections. And they don't have to be M&M cases. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking those 80-year-olds that come in with a classic stroke. We're talking the 35-year-old where, you know, a, a usual ischemic stroke doesn't usually happen. It's, it's those kinds of patients that we got to think about this stuff, right? Totally. But I can tell you something, Anton, that there ain't a stroke patient in the world that I don't ask if he or she had chest pain first. Because I see a lot of strokes patients. I work at a stroke center. I see two a shift. And I ask every single one if he had chest pain first. And if the answer is yes, you've just saved their life. And it ain't the TPA that's going to do it. So one plus chest pain. Totally. All right. One plus chest pain. So dissection didn't get the nickname the great imitator from nowhere. The amazing thing about this focal neurologic deficit thing with dissection is that the positive likelihood ratio is 33. So like Dave said, these aren't stroke patients you want to give TPA to. But if you have a patient that sounds like maybe they could be a dissection and they have a neurologic deficit, 
you really have to be thinking dissection. Yeah, you know, I always used to preach this chest pain plus one. That's how I was taught. And then I started to preach this one plus chest pain. And I think you need to look for every syndrome that can have a dissection. You have to look for it. So you have acute limb ischemia and do you have chest pain? You have a stroke. Do you have chest pain? You have to think backwards. You know, when we treat atrial fibrillation, we're always treating atrial fibrillation to prevent a stroke, right? So you see someone, you love these patients, they come in, they're fresh, palpitations, you get to spark them, right? Wonderful. We love them. They're easy. It's rewarding. You feel great. What if you ask that person, did you have a TIA yesterday? What? Well, they're coming in for their palpitations. But if they had a TIA yesterday, I might not zap that person. I might anticoagulate that person because I know they got big clot in their heart. So I think backwards. I think backwards with AFib, and I think backwards with dissection. And to me, that's the essence of catching it, is think about dissection presentations and going backwards. So far, we've talked about the five, the five pain pearls. We've talked about chest pain plus one, and we've talked about one plus chest pain. Let's move on to the physical exam. <laughs> Yeah, look, when we talk about the physical exam, you're not going to get a ton. I think one of the most important thing is that uh, if you're my height and weigh 50 pounds less, you should be extremely nervous when your patient comes in. And if you look at people with dissection under the age of 40, half of them are Marfans. Half of people under the age of 40 who have a dissections have Marfans. And I'm telling you, none of these people are going to know they have Marfans. So anyone who comes in with Marfan's with chest pain, you should have a a super high freak factor. But anyone who comes in who's extremely tall, extremely thin, and if you examine them and you look at some of the classic findings, appears Marfanoid, you have to have a very heightened index of suspicion. Suspicion. So I think you need to document on every young person with chest pain what's going to kill you. Either that you've used cocaine and you have a STEMI or a non-STEMI, or you are Marfanoid and you're having a dissection. So it's, again, a documentation. I don't want to sound like an American paranoid legal, um, medical legal fearing monger, but I think you need to think about Marfanoid in every young person. Absolutely. So the pectus excavatum, the, the lanky, tall person with really long arms and, and really long fingers. So in the physical exam, first we need to look. So we're going to talk about look, listen, and feel. So next after look is to listen. I know it's difficult to listen for murmurs, but maybe it's because I'm a musician and, and I have not a bad ear, but you got to at least try to listen for a murmur because if you have a patient that has a new aortic regurgitation murmur and chest pain, that's dissection until proven otherwise. Again, a very high positive likelihood ratio. So in the physical exam, we've covered look, we listen, and next we need to feel. Yeah, I mean, what I like because I'm lazy is a pulse deficit. I don't need to delegate that task to anyone else and tell someone else, can you check the the pulses for me in both arms bilaterally? I'm sure I'd be more of a diva than I am if I asked for that. Um, If you get a pulse deficit, you're done. I mean, it's a high likelihood ratio, but also there's not a lot of things that have pulse deficits. I mean, we're not here to diagnose subclavian steel and thoracic outlet syndromes. You have someone who comes in with a pulse deficit, you should be really scared. 
Absolutely. So let's review the physical exam key elements there. Look for Marfan's, especially in young people with chest pain. Listen for a new aortic regurge murmur and feel for a pulse deficit. Uh, so at this point in the podcast, we want to open the floor to some audience questions. Uh, so I actually have a question more around the, the feel aspect. So knowing that uh, a lot of our geriatric patients will be walking around with a wide BP differential in, in their limbs, uh, is there any utility in, in doing a, a bilateral BP on these patients that you might be suspecting? So I think you can do it, but I think your preface to the statement makes a lot of sense, which is if we look at this room, 53% of us have a blood pressure difference greater than 10 in both arms, and just under 20% have a blood pressure difference greater than 20. I, I don't think you should be roped into investigating every person who has an incidental blood pressure difference, because that's going to wreak havoc in your life. But I think in the right story, you might have more meat to kind of have a Bayesian approach with a good history and that blood pressure difference. So I don't think you can rest your hat on uh, that physical exam maneuver. I don't think it needs to be done on everyone. It certainly can help you reframe your balance of probabilities. But re remember, as you said, there's a lot, a lot of false positives. You were just talking about painless dissection, and yet you then indicated it would be a neurosymptom. You go backwards. Did you have pain? So it seems like there's a bit of a mismatch in that. So thank you for that question. I mean, not all of them are going to be painless. They're certainly going to be that 5 to 17% painless. But there's also people who don't tell you about pain. And it's hard to know in the studies, are these people, you know, if you survive, maybe they were appropriately asked or not. I think you can still be a painful dissection and present as a stroke, but the patient might focus their attention on the neurologic deficit because that's where he or she is most concerned about. So I agree. So I think you can have a painless dissection and have a syncopal event. You might have a painless dissection and throw up, show up as a stroke. You might have a painful dissection that shows up as a stroke too. They just might not tell you that. Before we leave the physical exam, we know from the IRED data that far from all patients with a dissection are hypertensive. You know, many will be normotensive and some of them, especially if they tear into the pericardium, will be hypotensive. So that's just one thing to think about that they don't necessarily need a high blood pressure. So a patient can certainly have a dissection with a normal blood pressure or with a low blood pressure. No, absolutely. And uh, remember, it's for this is a disease of hypertension for the most part. We can talk about zebras all day and all the funky dissections in 30-year-olds who are postpartum. But the end of the day is this is a disease of hypertension. And it's chronic hypertension. And they might be treated, but that might be their risk factor. The other thing that people always freak out about is this wide pulse pressure. So they'll, you know, how many times you see like a triage vital on someone who's come in with an ankle sprain who's, whose vitals are 140 over 36? And you're like, uh-huh. So, I mean, obviously we're repeating those. People are always like, well, Dave, if I see a wide pulse pressure, is this a guaranteed dissection? Remember, if you've got a wide pulse pressure, this tells you in the face of a dissection, your time on earth is soon evolving before you. So if you have a wide pulse pressure, it's almost game over. You're going to have severe aortic insufficiency, be in heart failure, look like crap. This may be just a nursing uh, aberration and just repeat the blood pressure because it's probably just nothing. All right. So we've covered history. We've covered physical. What about uh, the chest x-ray? So we know that about a third of chest x-rays in dissection are normal to the untrained eye. 
Oh, now what that means to me is that we should really train ourselves better to read chest x-rays for dissection. So the first thing to do is to compare the chest x-ray to the old chest x-ray if you can get one. That's number one. Second, you know, we should be looking for more than just a wide menisteinup. There's about a dozen x-ray findings of aortic dissection, but there are really a couple besides the wide menisteinum that I think are really important to talk about. And the ones that are important are loss of aortic knob slash the aortic pulmonary window and the calcium sign. So let's look at these two signs. First, you need to look for a loss of the aortic knob slash our aortic pulmonary window. On a normal chest x-ray, you see this nice rounded aortic knob and a gap just below it, right? Now, if you don't see that nice rounded aortic knob and the aorta and the aortic pulmonary window is obliterated, even if the mediastinum is narrow, you really got to have a heightened suspicion for dissection. Then there's the calcium sign. What you need to know is that a calcium sign of more than one centimeter in a patient with chest pain that has a picture that could be anything consistent with dissection is a dissection until proven otherwise. So if you look at the x-ray of a, of, of a patient with a dissection and you see calcium within the aortic knob, you measure that calcium the distance from there to the outer edge of the aortic knob, of the aortic knob. And if it's more than one centimeter, you really need to start treatment for dissection and get the patient to a CT scanner. Yeah, I mean, Anton, I think chest rays are, are super important. And obviously, they're going to be done in these patients that you're concerned about dissection. I think a couple things you have to realize is don't over-rely on a normal chest x-ray. A normal chest x-ray is not going to save your butt. 12% are completely normal by radiologists. 21% will have a normal mediastinum or normal aortic contour, which means if you add those two sums up together, 33% of those are probably going to be normal by you and I. Okay? And this displaced calcium sign is great, provided that you're the type of dissection that are 75 years old, chronic hypertension, calcified vessel, and then you can see the difference between the true and false lumen. If you're a younger person and is tearing for other reasons, you might not have calcified atherosclerotic vessels that tear. So the mistakes that I've seen in reviewing a lot of these cases are people who falsely say blood pressure equal, chest x-ray normal, no signs of dissection. That's great. Congratulations. But it doesn't help you a ton. So these signs have a pretty high specificity, but their sensitivity is terrible. All right, here's a question for the audience, and then we'll take another question from the audience. Has anyone here seen a dissection with a STEMI? So 10% of you, that's wonderful numbers. It's not super common. Um, about one in 100 to one in 1,000 are the estimates. So you don't see it a lot. And I think what we don't want you to do is, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's a duck. So STEMIs are not super common to present as dissection, and dissection's a rare thing. What we do know about STEMIs is they typically will tear, retrograde, and pick off the right coronary so they'll present as an inferior. Now, that's not the be-all and end-all. It exists, but you take something that's rare, you take something that's rare to present as STEMI, and then if that's going to happen, it's almost most commonly going to be an inferior. So in a non-inferior, it's not as, as likely, but with a perfect story you know, you may not want to thrombolyze or anticoagulate without some imaging or echo or stuff like that. There's other roles potentially. Yeah, I think the big pitfall is 
in a patient that kind of looks like a, a real STEMI and they're presenting like a real STEMI, if they have some little element like a, their pain is radiating to the back just to hold off on all your STEMI treatment, because just statistically speaking, the chances that they actually have a dissection causing their STEMI is so rare uh, that you'd be harming a lot of patients who are having STEMIs without a dissection with, uh, without treating them. It's funny. I used to be so afraid of dissections when I used to thrombolize patients. Now that I don't thrombolize patients, you just like call the cat lab, but you're still giving all that junk upstream, right? The ticagrelor, the heparin, whatever your shop likes. So you're still giving them drugs that aren't great for dissection. So think about it, but understand it's a rare condition with a rare presentation. So we've talked about history, physical, we've talked about chest x-ray. Let's talk about blood tests and the pitfalls in blood tests. Dave, what are the most common pitfalls in the assessment of aortic dissection when it comes to blood test interpretation? So there's probably two blood tests that you'll see. And, and since we just talked about chest pain, I'd like to just focus on trope. About 25% of people with dissections will spill trope. It's another cause of troponitis that uh, is not correctly anticoagulated. So things like before you just assume every trope is ACS, think about PEs, think about dissection. I want to tell you a great quick story is I was having lunch at the hospital, a nice long lengthy lunch during a typical emerge shift. And I got called by the nurse to say, oh, Dave, that ECG you signed, the trope is positive. So that's like a lunch runer because of course I wrote no STEMI, nothing, don't worry about it. And I go see the patient and the patient's trope was elevated, like a sucky rise. And I said, do you even have, like, I hadn't even seen, I've just signed her ECG. And I asked the patient a question. I couldn't even hear her talk. And I said, do you have chest pain? No. What do you mean? No. Your trope's positive. Of course you have chest pain. And I said, do you have any chest pain? She goes, no, I can't talk. I had some chest pain, but now I can't talk. Well, 90 year olds don't just come in with sore throats. So this was a classic and one, right? She came in with a what was looking like a non-STEMI based on her troponitis. Would have been easy to just heparinize her and move on. But when you asked her, she came in with an Ortner syndrome. She had a recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy that she just tore up, ripped off her recurrent laryngeal nerve, couldn't really talk, but antecedently had chest pain. Fortunately, the trope caught it, but the trope also could have killed her if you just heparinized her. Yeah, so there's trope, and then there's it. All, it comes up occasionally. Is does a D-dimer help us in ruling out dissection in low risk patients? And I just did a massive Journal Jam podcast uh, with Rory Spiegel and Justin Morgenstern and Teresa Chan, where we cover that topic in crazy, crazy depth. We talk about the entire world's literature, but the bottom line is you probably should not be using a D-dimer to help you rule out dissection in low-risk patients. That's all you want to say? That's all I'm going to say for now because we got there's tons of good juicy stuff on the journal, Jim. I don't, okay. want to, don't want to ruin it. Fair enough. All right. Let's move on to POCUS. There was a, a question before about POCUS. Uh, Dave, what can you tell us about uh, POCUS, the, yeah, the I, retinal detachment yeah, of the I love torso. this. And, and whenever I give a talk and I'm asking Jordan Schenken for pictures of uh, TEEs or TTEs, I remember the best story was I said to my colleague, do you have anything interesting today? He said, yeah. I said, well, I saw this person with what I thought was a AAA, and I did the ultrasound, and he had a retinal detachment. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? He said, well, I did the ultrasound. I put it on the aorta looking for a AAA, and I saw this flap. It looked just like a retinal tear. And I knew it wasn't his retina. And I was like, what else could be a flap in his aorta? So we fluked the diagnosis of a dissection. So, you know, Raghu, you had spoke earlier about 
ultrasounding chest pains, what we know about sensitivity and specificity is your sensitivity, if you look at eMERGE docs and say, just look at the aorta, about almost 70% sensitive, 98% specific for looking at a, re- a flap, a retinal flap, a, a aortic flap. So we're all, most of us have taken some basic training of ultrasound, which means we're all trained to look at the aorta. Not all of us are going to be able to do TEEs, me with two hands up that I can't come close to that, but I'm certainly looking at aortas and I'm certainly look, flipping upwards and looking at the pericardium to see if there's been a dissection that's spilled into the pericardium showing with an infusion. Now, am I doing this for everyone? No, but I'm doing this for people that I want to add information to formulate a pretest probability of a serious cause of chest pain. All right, so a normal bocus doesn't rule out a dissection, but if you see an intimal flap, that's pretty much a slam dunk. Let's say we've identified a type B dissection on CT now. We've sent the patient to CT, they have a type B dissection, or we were lucky enough to pick it up on POCUS. Now what? Well, I can tell you that you know since we know the mortality increases by 1% or 2% every hour, the first thing you need to do is get on the phone with the CV surgeon. And this is, remember, a type B dissection. Sometimes one of the pitfalls is just thinking that you need to get on the, call, on the phone with the CV surgeon for only type A dissections. Many type B dissections also require surgery, you know, because they can take out your kidneys and they need surgery for that, for example. And you need to do this for all dissections. So what can we do in the emergency department right now before we get the patient to the CV surgeon? Let's talk about heart rate and blood pressure. So Dave, what do we need to know about treating the patient's heart rate and blood pressure? Because you can just imagine with that stress on the, on the aortic wall, the higher the heart rate and the higher the blood pressure, you're just going to keep on tearing and tearing and tearing. These are people that you need to treat. And sometimes you don't have the diagnosis, but the master clinician treats people with life-threatening illness before you radiate the pants off of them. So when I have a life-threatening PE, I don't wait for a CT, I anticoagulate. And when I have what is very apparent to me as a dissection, I'm not going to sit around like a guy like you've described with a blood pressure of 200 and a heart rate of 110, and begging a radiology resident to do a CT on someone that I'm slam dunk, I need to start getting the process going. And the first and most underrated things that people don't do is you need to fentalize your patients, okay? I am the anti, I hate opioids, I just had my knee done, I would never fill a script. Um, However, these people, the pain is driving their sympathetic response, and it is elevating their blood pressure. I love it, Dave. You just came up with this new verb, fentalize. Yeah. I find that if you add Y-Z-E to anything in medicine, it sounds dramatically smoother, like syncopize, fentanylize, um, labetalize. We'll talk about that after. Um, What you want to do is you got to get this blood pressure down. Don't be cheap. These people, remember, these people that you give narcotics to with chest pains have dissections. Therefore, if you have a dissection, give them narcotics. The one plus dissection, one plus fentanyl thing. But um, pain control, establish it early, pre-CT. Get these people comfortable. You will see dramatic drops in their blood pressure. And then what you have to do is you got to get their heart rate controlled. 
Okay, what we know is that if you add a vasodilator first, you have a reflex tachycardia. So what you want to do is get something like labetalol or esmolol on board to lower that shearing force on the heart by getting to heart to beat a lot less quickly. So it might be that pre-CT, if your pre-test is close to 100, you might fentalize, labetalize, right? Give them something, get them to CT right away, go with them and bring them right back. Then once you've got their heart rate down, you're looking at adding some blood pressure control with a vasodilating drug. And it depends what country you work in. I know in the States, they're very big on nicardipine. Time-honored has been nitroprusside, nitroglycerin here. But you want to get that systolic blood pressure down to 110. And to get your goals, your heart rate of 60, your blood pressure to be about 110, it's going to take several agents. It's going to take time and a stepwise approach. And one pearl I like to talk about is think about something called pseudo-hypotension, which is if you have a blood pressure difference in both arms, and in one arm you're 160 over 90, and the other arm you're 110 over 70, well, you can stop treatment if you're only taking the blood pressure in the lower arm because you've hit your target. So always use the blood pressure in the arm that's higher for your treatment parameters. Otherwise, you will think you're doing a lot better job than you are. Okay, so to review there the management, first, treat the pain. Second, treat the heart rate with either labetalol or esmolol. And then third, treat the blood pressure. Your targets are a heart rate of 60 and a blood pressure of 110. And remember to take the blood pressure, that's the higher blood pressure when you're doing your bilateral blood pressures. So before we bring it all home, there were some questions from the audience I wanted you guys to go back to talking about when the pain comes and goes, because I think that's the majority of the vague chest pain that we get, right, is how often you get the pain while it's coming and going and you're nailing down the details of it. Is there anything more you can add to that part of the history? Um, is it sort of more worrisome if they're saying that when it comes back, it's, you know, super severe or is it like going to be more like a subarachnoid where it could be biphasic? Or again, are we talking about all of those vague people? Do we still have to have our antennae up equally? Okay, I would say that the, the pain that comes and goes, it's generally coming and going because it's dissecting mm-hmm. and then stopping yeah. and then dissecting and then stopping. Mm-hmm. So it comes back to the one of the pain pearls we talked about, the migration. Right. So I would say that if it comes and goes and it's always in the exact same spot, that's not nearly as concerning as if it comes and goes and it's migrating each time okay. to a different location. Okay. Yeah, but also it's not like it comes and goes 400 times. You don't right. get so many free passes. Okay. Like it's, it came, I thought this was the worst pain ever. And then I was like, totally fine. Was it going to the hospital? And then it happened again and my husband or wife made me come. It is going to be a dramatic, not every 10 minutes I get this. It's been like three weeks of this. I can't believe how bad it is. Okay. It's real. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap it all up. Here's the review. Remember the big five pain pearls, migrating pain, the three important questions, colicky pain plus opioids equals badness, pain that comes and goes can still be a dissection. Next, look for Marfans, document Marfans, listen for a murmur if you're skilled to do so. And feel for a pulse deficit because you actually have fingers and they have two pulses and it's pretty easy to do. Think not only about chest pain plus one, but also one plus chest pain. Know your x-ray findings, know their limitations, and use POCUS. And when it comes to management, treat the pain first, then the heart rate, then the blood pressure.
So until next time, hope you all pick up a not-so-obvious dissection and save a life. So that's it for dissection. To consolidate your knowledge, check out the show notes at emcases.com. And if you're not signed up for the Just the Nuggets, please do so on the website to receive the key take-home points from this podcast and all the other main podcasts in your inbox. Now, as far as other courses coming up that I recommend to expand your EM brain, North York General's Emergency Medicine Update is in its 30th year this year. They've got a killer lineup. Dave will be there, Amalmatu, Walter Himmel, Ruben Strayer, Mike Bexner, who we collaborate on for our Crit Cases blog. My friend and amazing education innovator Rob Rogers is coming up from Lexington. Uh, Chris Hicks, Sarah Gray, Justin Morgenstern, Anthony Crocco, Kylie Bosman, who did the great Backboard and Color Nightmares podcast last year. Um, I'll be there doing a couple of workshops, and what I'm most excited about is Emu's first ever live podcast that I'm going to do with Pocus Guru Jordan Chenkin. We'll be putting on a multimedia show for you on moving beyond ACLS cardiac arrest care. Oh, and if you haven't checked it out already, our new Rapid Reviews video series is up and running to help you consolidate your knowledge of the main episodes. We've also got a new video series coming out that I'm totally psyched about. It's called Pocus Pearls, where your host, the one and only Dr. Rob Samard and the brightest Toronto Pocus gurus will produce these high-impact, case-based, practical, and entertaining short videos on key Pocus topics. So I hope to see you at EMU and the podcasting course in Kentucky this spring.